0: Yeah, I think if I think you'd go crazy if you did it on a daily basis. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue.
1: How many of you have experienced making a bad hire or had bad hires on your team? I personally lost over $840,000 on just one bad hire alone. So that's why I'm doing a free class called the five secrets to avoiding bad hires that can cost you $50,000 plus each. All you need to do is to text bad hire, spell it out, B-A-D-H-I-R-E to 33444. That's double three, triple four, and you'll be registered. I'll see you there. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today we have Sachin Kamdar, who is the CEO and co-founder of Parsley, which provides digital publishers with clear audience insights to answer questions about how readers are responding to their content. Sachin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for being on the show. So, why don't we start off with uh, why don't we start off with your, with your background first and we'll go from there?
0: Sure. So, yeah, so, um, you know, I'm, I probably don't have the traditional background of a startup entrepreneur. Um, I uh, graduated with uh, the degree in econ from NYU. Um, and after that, I followed one of my passions, which, um, you know, started in high school and went through college, which was education. I always was uh, strongly attached to tutoring people, volunteering in the education field in whatever way I could. And I joined a, a program called the New York City Teaching Fellows, where I taught at an alternative high school for a couple of years after college um, in uh, Brooklyn. And uh, you know, we can talk about analogs that I have from being a teacher and starting a company, Um, But, you know, after uh, teaching for a couple of years, talked to um, uh, one of my former roommates and colleagues at NYU, uh, Andrew Montalenti. Um, at this point, I was sort of uh, uh, consulting and helping build and manage and implement technologies for several schools throughout the system, uh, or throughout the city, rather. And Andrew was a software developer at a big bank, and, and we were both sort of frustrated with the way that our careers were going in, in terms of not being able to see the fruits of our labor. And that's when we started to talk about um, one of our shared interests, which was uh, startups and technology, and this was back in two thousand and nine, and that's when we decided to um, actually take the plunge and start Parsley.
1: Got it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about about Parsley. You know, um, it's always good to hear from the, the CEO's mouth about what the company is all about.
0: Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Parsley has gone through a variety of different iterations uh, since our our uh, foundation um, of the company back in two thousand and nine. Um, it's all been sort of centered around building technology that. Um, takes unstructured data, um, specifically in the form of content, and builds interesting technology around that through analyzing that unstructured data, extracting value out of it, and building products and services on top of it. Um, So we can certainly get into the the sort of uh, earlier iterations of the company, but um, now what we're focused on and what's been um, really, really successful uh, for us is um, using that technology to build the right type of analytics when it comes to content. Um, We sort of saw in this industry that, you know, when it came to web analytics, it was really focused on, um, you know, sort of general purpose web analytics or even sort of fine tuned for e-commerce and content is very different and there's a lot of rich data that you can um, extract out of that content that you can use to provide insights uh, back to uh, uh, the site owners and the content creators to really understand their audience better. Um, And so we built out that technology and now we work with some of the best names in um, uh, uh, digital publishing. So some of our customers include Condé Nast, New York Post, Fox News, um, and several other sort of top-notch uh, uh, digital media companies that work with us and use our insights to understand their audience better.
1: Got it. You know, I actually remember using Parsley maybe two or three years ago when I was at a startup called Treehouse. Um, And you know, I remember it was pretty neat. um, But can you tell me, you know, how exactly? Can you tell the audience actually how it differs from from other analytical tools, and you know, how it can actually benefit them?
0: Yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, I'm going to make the assumption that most people are familiar with maybe a Google Analytics, or um, maybe even an analytics platform that's more geared towards getting people to buy a product. Um, um, and you know, there's some fundamental things that are different when you take something like a Google Analytics, which is very broad, um, can be focused on a lot of different things, or you take something that's very fine-tuned for something like e-commerce. So I'll look at both of those. So you know, the really great thing about content is that. Um, just by the sheer creation of your content, you're actually creating a lot of interesting data. Um, You're creating information around who the authors of that content is, um, information around uh, what topics or tags you're uh, uh, writing about or associating your content with. Um, You're creating information around um, the referral sources, so where your audience is coming from and how they match up with these things. Um, If you're a large media site, you might have different sections or subsections. And so The really great thing about content, it, it actually is one of those um, uh, true sort of big data industries where they're producing a ton of data around um, the semantic level about what that content is about. And you can actually marry that with the behavioral level to get um, really interesting insights about that content. So going back to those two different analogs, with Google Analytics, it takes a lot of effort to actually get interesting insights out of content. Um, you have to be a... Expert, and you have to um, uh, use development resource to actually get it to um, the place where you can understand clearly uh, what your audience is doing with your content and how you can actually grow um, your audience over time using uh, the type of data that uh, you would get through that, or the type of data that you can get from us out of the box. Using something like, um, you know, something that's more uh, fine-tuned for e-commerce. The difference is, is with e-commerce, you might have, you know, a couple hundred products. And really you have one main goal, which is to get people to purchase those products. But with content you could have, you know we're talking about some of the larger players, you could have hundreds of thousands or even millions of pieces of content. And your goal isn't necessarily to get them to convert, it's really to get them to engage, to get them to share, um, to get them to read your content. And so um, uh, being able to take that huge amount of data around all the articles and the millions of people um, that are visiting that uh, content and being able to distill that in to interesting insights around um, your site can be quite difficult. And so we found that if you can focus on that specific area, which is sort of uh, extracting value out of content and building technology directly for content, you're going to have a platform that becomes more robust but actually more simple at the same time um, because of the focus on the content.
1: Okay. Now, I remember I I took a look at your homepage and it looks like you guys have a case study with... um, you know the the cheeseburger website. Can you talk a little bit about that case study?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, you know, we were um, talking with cheeseburger, and, and you know, I think the great thing about cheeseburger and Ben Ha is that uh, he has been so transparent about how that company has been operated over the past several years. And you know, one of the things that they ran into is just overspending on um, a lot of different things that. Uh, weren't necessarily providing value back uh, directly to the business, um, and he sort of tried to rein that in and, and focus on those high-value opportunities, and one of the things that they knew they needed to do is to build a, um, a, a sort of data and analytics culture inside the organization, um, and so that's when they started to look at uh, potential vendors to help them out with that, and uh, they looked at Parsley, and Um, you know, one of the things that, a couple of things that I think they really started to use us for is our ability to um, show in in sort of real time and historically what content does well. So you can look at, you know, what content is doing well over the last, you know, minute, over the last few seconds, over the last 20 minutes, whatever sort of time range you want to look at there. Um, But then you can actually take a more reflective view and say, okay, well, um, over the last month, what content has really trended for our site and how can we double down our resources from a planning perspective to build more into that. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is actually using analytics data not just as a sort of dashboard where you're looking at it and making decisions off of it, uh, but actually building product directly on top of that. And so uh, they use the Parsley API to actually um, automatically show articles that were going to be the most viral or had the most viral tendencies um, to users that were hitting their site. And that became... Um, a super high-performing module for them um, that uh, allowed them to, uh, you know, again, sort of reinvest in those things that are going to be the most important uh, for Cheeseburger at that time. So, so they've been uh, a great client and uh, a great sort of example of how um, using data and analytics can help uh, uh, align yourselves closer to the business and, and, two, how we can actually influence the product directly.
1: Got it. Okay. Cool. So basically, to simplify it for the the marketers that are watching this or the content marketers not not watching this, listening to this, um, basically it's going to help you bring in um, more revenues from content. I'm just going to simplify it to that.
0: Yep. Yep. Cool. I mean, I think I think one of the interesting things that has happened over the last several years is you know content has been seen as not just a uh, means to for digital media companies or publishers to. Um, create content and make advertising revenue off of it. But a lot of marketers have realized that it's a super effective and efficient way of customer acquisition. And so, um, you know, any insider intelligence you can get around that can um, help you grow your business. Wow. I think
1: you're selling me on this now. I might have to download it from my company. Um, Okay, cool. So let's talk a little bit, you know, you have a teaching background and I've never in I don't think I've ever interviewed someone that was a teacher before and became a, a startup CEO, or much, sure. much, less, much less a technology uh, startup CEO. So how does your teaching background or how has your teaching background helped you as a CEO?
0: Yeah, well, it turns out there's a lot of different analogs between um, teaching and, and running a company. Um, so, you know, when you're uh, a teacher, you have that same sort of objective, which is you're trying to um, get people to accomplish a specific goal. Um, And whether that's, you know, grade-based, whether that's sort of learning outcomes-based or other ways that you might want to measure or evaluate success, um, that's to be determined. But suffice it to say, you want them to accomplish a certain goal um, uh, during the school year. And one of the big things that you have to do is allow them to not just see it as school, um, or allow them to not just see it as education, but allow them to actually internalize it, take on that responsibility and become motivated uh, to learn and to educate themselves. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of the analogs that I see is really around um, motivation and trying to get people to internalize how this is going to have a positive effect on them um, over the course of the year, over the course of five years or 10 years or, you know, the rest of their life. And so at a really high level, that's like sort of the biggest analog between the two. It's all centered around um, motivation and making sure that people are um, are productive in the way that they want to be as opposed to you just saying, you know, go finish this homework or um, go finish this uh, task in this iteration. <laughs> cool. Can you, give me, can you give me an example of that? Uh, yeah, on the education side, or on the or or both, both. Yeah, sure. Um, so you know, one of the things that uh, uh, we try to do at Parsley is, um, from a management perspective, we don't want to be managers where. Uh, we're, uh, you know, basically micromanaging or saying, like, you need to do this or you need to do that. The way that we approach it is um, if we can hire the best talent possible, um, we want to allow them to sort of set their own path for success, and we want to be accelerants to that, so at no point in time should... Um, you know, myself or Andrew, my co-founder, be a bottleneck to people achieving what they want in the company, we should only help them accelerate that. And so um, at Parsley, we try to uh, live and breathe that in the way that we operate and the way that... um, we sort of manage the the individuals, so um, that'll go down to sort of performance reviews, um, where we talk about what they want to do next and, and how they want to accomplish their own career growth um, at Parsley, and that helps them sort of internalize um, why doing this thing is going to be successful for themselves. So driving that back to the education side, it's totally the way that I operated too. It's um, starting the year by thinking really about um, how they think this is going to help them grow. and. You know, sometimes they wouldn't have a clear understanding of why that would be the case. Um, um, you know, I was a math teacher, so not everybody loves math. And so you have to like sort of push and nudge them along. But whenever you can get them to sort of see the, ta- uh, the direct and, and not just sort of tangential benefits of um, the work that they're doing and the education that they have, um, you just see amazing results. So that sort of management philosophy has carried over from education to, uh, 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 to Parsley.
1: Got it. Now, just talking a little bit more, more about, uh, you know, organization and management here, you know, I, I read that you guys, you know, have a flat structure um, or a flat culture. How does that, you know, th- I mean, what are the, I don't know no benefits to that. You know, you look at Zappos, there's a lot of different companies that do it. I think Valve as well. Um, you know, What are the benefits? First of all, let's talk about the benefits. And then let's talk about kind of the negative sides of having a flat culture.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think the benefits of having a flat culture is um, it builds a a culture of accountability because at the end of the day, you're not relying on a specific individual to take on 100% of the responsibility. You're saying – um, everybody is responsible and so everybody is accountable for um, the success or failures that we have at the company. And so, I think that tends to have a healthy motivation um, across the board, um, and and nobody is sort of singled out as being the single point of failure or success for the company. Um, uh, related to that, uh, uh, I think on the failure side, you just need to, or the negative side, you need to have the right. Uh, white sort of path to get decisions to happen. So one of the, I think the negative sides is that you can have this sort of committee mentality where, um, you know, everybody wants to have a say or nothing sort of gets uh, said. Um, as as being the sort of the final decision, um, and I think as a result of that, uh, you can have uh, 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 conversations that drag on and decisions that not that aren't being made as fast as they should have. Um, so, partially, what we try to do is have. Um, uh, a variety of different teams um, and you can be on uh, uh, multiple teams. You're not just on one team and there's a catalyst to that team. So that catalyst isn't necessarily um, you know, the one that is the uh, manager of that team, but they're the ones that are helping drive um, uh, whatever that team is trying to accomplish, whether that be on sort of the sales side, the marketing side, customer success, products, et cetera. And so we have people that are catalysts and, and most people at the company are a catalyst for at least one team um, at Parsley. And I think that helps uh, uh, get through uh, any part that could uh, uh, of a conversation that could drag as a result of a flat infrastructure.
1: Got it. And is that called, uh, I might be butchering this, but is it called a holacracy kind of like that?
0: Yeah, it's definitely related to a holacracy type mentality, but um, you know, you can go really really uh, complex with holacracy. Like you can um, have this like crazy handbook that's centered around all these different things. We try to keep it as 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 simple as possible because I think mm. um, the more complex you get with that, the less um, the less sort of uh, efficacy it, it can have. Got it. Okay.
1: Now let's let's shift it to growth a little bit. So, can you share sure. Can you share any numbers around Parsley's growth to date?
0: Yeah, yeah. So we've grown um, pretty tremendously over the last um, several years. So um, we released Parsley Analytics, which is um, the the sort of sole product that we sell right now. And uh, we released that in March of 2012. Um, so it's been in the marketplace for um, about two and a three quarters years, almost three years now. Um, and we've been able to grow um, you know, in our first year and a half from zero to a million dollars in annual recurring revenue. And now we're at um, multiple million dollars in annual recurring revenue growing at somewhere between 150 to 200 percent year over year.
1: Wow. Okay. And how many employees right now?
0: Uh, So we're 25 employees. Wow. Okay.
1: Incredible growth. Um, Okay. Now, how did you go about acquiring your first thousand customers? Or let's just say the first hundred. Let's keep it simple.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd actually bring that a little bit lower than a first hundred. So, partially, um, you know, our sales process is is enterprise sale where our price points Mm. are um, anywhere from, you know, uh, several hundred dollars a month um, to, you know, five figures a month. And so, uh, the the first 100 customers um, would be after finding product market fit. I'd probably narrow that down to the first 20 customers for us um, in terms of like that that first sort of stage where you know that something's working. Okay. Um. So that first 20, uh, I, it was really. Um, A lot of uh, hustle, right? So there are multiple different strategies that we've used to uh, build into the media industry because nobody um, that we had on the team when we first started out actually had a background in media. Um, It was a result of sort of working with media companies and learning about where their uh, challenges were that we um, started to build product into it. So a couple of different things that we used to get those first several customers are um, investors actually were really helpful for us, Um, both investors that were current investors in the company and potential investors in Parsley. Um, So one of the things that uh, we did is that whenever we would pitch an investor um, on Parsley, Uh, we'd ask them if they had any portfolio companies um, that were media companies in their uh, 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 network or if they knew any media companies in their network. And they, basically nine times out of ten, they would have that. And nine times out of ten, they would make that introduction because that act as, uh, acted as sort of a due diligence point on their part. Um, so they're happy to do that if they're interested in the company. And two, they just want to have like a, a good reputation overall. And so um, that actually was really effective in, in um, getting to our first uh, several uh, customers into the pipeline and, and getting to our first 20 customers customers overall. And second, um, LinkedIn is super powerful. Um, So uh, it's not surprising at all, but um, to the degree that you can use LinkedIn to build up your network and then identify the right people to get introductions um, to or from, um, that can be uh, incredibly successful too. And so, you know, after our first 20 or so, we started to get a little bit of word of mouth and then um, we started to actually build out sort of a marketing strategy for Parsley.
1: Got it. Now, Okay. Well, first of all, 90% response rate. That's great. Um, so with LinkedIn, I mean, um, and just for the audience here, you know, were you using any tools with LinkedIn, like LinkedIn sales navigator or just using like the pure free version?
0: Uh, so we were, we had like a professional license, um, both myself, um, my co-founder and our, our, uh, director of sales, we all had professional licenses, which would give us emails mails. I don't think they had, um, sales navigator at that time. Um, so we were just using, um, the the sort of, I I don't know, they changed like their, their like names for whatever licenses they have every, every week. But I think it was just called like sales professional or something like that.
1: Got it. Okay. So you, I mean, based on what you were using back then, did you, do you recommend it? Would you do it? Would you use it again?
0: Yeah. So I think the great part now is that there's a lot of people that have built um, some interesting services on top of it, um, where they're pulling information from LinkedIn and other sources um, you know, uh, there's a couple that come to mind like, um, uh, Lead Stack and I think Lead Gen- Genius is another one where you can start to build lead lists on top of it. Um, but I still think that building up that network. Um, on LinkedIn is super important. Building up the network in your customer uh, uh, group is super important because it's used as a validation factor. So if you're connected to other people that are executives at um, other customers and you're reaching out to somebody that's new, they're going to look at that and see that as social proof. So um, even though you can use some of these newer lead gen um, tools, uh, to help you uh, build out a list. It's still important to make sure that you build out the right network to start out because that can help you um, get a higher response rate.
1: Got it. Okay. Now, you know, you talked a little bit about LinkedIn. You talked about you know asking, uh, you know, asking for portfolio companies like introductions. Um, and you wrote, you also wrote a series of blog posts on you know sales hacking for startups. Is there anything around that, uh, anything super effective that you can share with the audience?
0: Yeah, um, so you know, I think it's really important. Like one of the tools that I mentioned in there is this um, tool called Newsly. Are you familiar with that? I am not. Um, so basically, what it does is it um, mines your LinkedIn connections. You can connect it to Facebook too, but I think it gets a little bit noisy. At least for me, it did when I did that. So I just uh, limited it to LinkedIn, and it basically look at all your LinkedIn connections. Um, And it would try to uh, match that to any press that came out to um, around uh, the connections that you have. And so like a daily basis, you get this nice roll up of any press around um, anybody that you're connected to. And so that's a great way to then um, reach out to individuals um, to say, hey, I read this piece about you or a great, great quote in this piece. We should catch up. Um, One of the things that we sort of learned at Parsley is that – When you're uh, doing cold calling or when you're like checking in. Um, not having a good reason to reach out to somebody um, equals a bad fail, a uh, bad uh, uh, response rate. So you really need to have something that is driving the reason for why you're reaching out. Whether that's a blog post they wrote, whether that's um, some press that they've gotten, whether um, you saw some, you know, recent news around the specific company and, and how your company could help that out. Um, that type of context. Uh, makes it more clear that it's not um, just a random cold call and really directed towards their needs or directed towards the specific individual. Okay, perfect.
1: Now, switching gears again, let's talk about the startup days. What's one big struggle? And I mean, you're always facing struggles, obviously, as, as a business, but what's one big yeah. struggle you faced while growing the business?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned that, you know, we had a couple of different products at at Parsley. Um, uh, So this is actually sort of the third iteration of the company. We basically had two other products before that. Um, So... Uh, figuring out um, the right uh, uh, sort of path to where we are today was absolutely challenging. Um, you know, the first product that we had was this consumer uh, uh, newsreader where you could enter in the topics that you cared about. It would um, prioritize this news feed for you based on those topics, and it would learn as you interacted with more content. So it had this sort of implicit interest uh, profile that it would build based on your interactions. So we launched that at the end of an accelerator program back in 2009 and we came into uh, the sort of fall 2009 fundraising environment um, and it, it was not that good. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is right after the recession. Investors were holding their money closer to the chest. We didn't have like an imminent business model. We just knew that that wasn't going to be the right uh, path for us. So um, we had to switch gears and that's when we saw the ability to use that sort of learning technology to help influence um, how people were finding content on publisher sites. And that's when we started working with publishers and so uh, we began to um, use that uh, as a way to build um, uh, uh, revenue um, very fast uh- in those earlier days when we sorely needed that revenue. Um, and that's when we closed our first round of financing. And then after working with media companies, we started to learn that the analytics space was just um, totally greenfield because there was nobody that was really building content for or building analytics for content. It was always ported over from these other systems. And that's when we changed directions again um, to really focus on the analytics side. So the challenge, I think, is, you know, being able to stay persistent, um, um, and figuring out the right path in an opportunistic way and not just saying like, you know, uh, uh, because of all that we've done thus far, we need to throw that away and go a different direction. Um, but really using what there's this, um, there's this professor at UVA, I think her name is Saravati. She's sort of cat. Uh, Uh, categorize it as effectual thinking. So really being effectual about the way that you think about your resources in the business and not being causal, which is sort of the other way to think about it. I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that if that's interesting. Yeah, let's dive into it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, basically the way that she talks about it, and I think this is a great explanation of how um, and why companies pivot is, um, so she did this study of I think maybe three or four hundred different uh, CEOs that were um, running public companies, so already successful, and tried to identify how they were thinking about their business and how they were making moves and decisions. Um, And what she came to the conclusion is that it's not done in a sort of linear way where it's like, you know, here's all my resources, here's the goal that I have for the end of the year, I'm going to draw a direct line to that goal, and I'm going to make sure that that happens um, no matter what. And if it doesn't happen, well, you know, that just sucks, but it just didn't happen. Um, so that type of uh, direct, linear, or causal—I think—is the way she described it. Uh, thinking does not work when you talk to all of these successful entrepreneurs and CEOs. Um, rather, the way that it's—they uh, sort of uh, operate in the way that I think a lot of um, entrepreneurs and startups operate—is is the effectual way, where you consider the um, group of resources that you have. So these are the employees that um, I have. They're these are their specialties. This is the product that I have. Um, this is like the customer list that I have here's the market and you consider all those resources and instead of saying like oh, I'm going to go directly to that goal that I had a month ago, you're like, well, there might be this other goal that's sort of off to the side that's actually better given the resources that we have in the environment at that time. Um, So really uh, continually reflecting on where you are as a company, what resources you have, and then figuring out uh, where you want to go from there instead of just saying, okay, this is my single goal. I'm going to make sure it happens no matter what. And the way that she sort of positions it is as like um, entrepreneurial thinking versus MBA thinking. Uh, uh, so it's another <laughs> another sort of analog you could use. Okay.
1: Now, the frequency where you're supposed to be doing this type of thinking, you know, is it is it a daily thing? Is it a weekly thing? I mean, how often?
0: Yeah, I think if I think you'd go crazy if you did it on a daily basis. Uh, potentially on a weekly basis too. Um, I think it's something where you want to, um, you know, look at your business. Um, I think, on a monthly or it, it can even be a quarterly basis. Um, it gets harder and harder to do um, when you get bigger and bigger because there are so many things in place, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. I think why earlier companies can pivot so easily is because um, they're flexible and they're nimble and they get into it um, almost the amount of resources and the opportunities that are out there. And so you know um, smaller companies just have that ability to turn on a dime and um, go after the opportunities that they see in. Front of them. But I think it's also important that you know pivoting um, in a good way doesn't mean that you're just throwing away everything that you did and go after something completely different. I really think it's important to consider where you are, what you've built, um, the resources at hand. Uh, 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 to really sort of get to the next best opportunity, and not just sort of grabbing the next idea that pops into your head.
1: Got it. Okay, makes sense. So you talked about you know having having trouble with the uh, you know, having trouble with funding, obviously with two thousand nine with the recession and all that. But was there any other point in time where the company was on the brink of failure?
0: Yeah. So um, you know when we were raising our our first round of institutional um, um, money, um, so our first eight hundred thousand dollars. Um, we had a term sheet from an investor and we were ready to um, close out that round of financing. We were like, this is like after bootstrapping for almost a year now. Um, so we're definitely ready to sort of kick it into the next gear and um, we're ready to put the money to work. Um, and, and sort of in the, uh, in the 23rd hour, the investor pulled their term sheet. Um, and this was after us, like sort of having all the rest of the money um, closed up. Um, we were ready to sort of go to um, docs and get everything um, squared away. And so that was like not great because we thought, you know, well, well, shit, that's the end of it. We're done. <laughs> like we we'll, we can't we can't um, uh, you know go through this process of fundraising anymore. And so the funny thing is, you know, we had a couple of more investor meetings to meet and. We met this other guy who um, uh, was uh, really interested in the work that we were doing and um, basically said, I'll write you a check on the spot. Um, I'm ready to put money in. And a few days later, he um, did actually put money into Parsley, was ready to um, uh, start working on the docs as a sort of post-facto thing. Um, And then all of a sudden, all these other investors were interested and we were oversubscribed at that point. And so I think that just... um, Sort of highlights the uh, the sort of roller coaster nature of a company where we're literally uh, in two weeks we went from uh, this is all done to oh my god like we have amazing investors and we're oversubscribed.
1: <laughs> wow. So I mean, just backtracking a little bit. I mean, what is going through your head when the freaking term sheet gets pulled? I mean, is it uh, just tell me what's going going through your head?
0: I I mean it was just so I. It was just uh, it was just a mix of feelings. Um, you know, this is the first company that that we had done, and and we were just like, well, what what mistake did we make? Like, what? It was just it was really. Uh, I think for me at least, it felt like a failure on my part. Like, what? What what went wrong here? Um, how did it get to this point? Um, you know, we had um, a great uh, customer list at that point. We were making a, a decent amount of money, but not enough to really sort of get to the next stage. Um, and so it just was just like a, a continual reflection on, you know, what went wrong. Why is this happening? What went wrong? And then like sort of, you know, I think a day or so later, this. Uh, this sort of realization that, you know, we were going to have to close things up. <laughs> um, and, you know, thank God we took those uh, other uh, meetings because those other meetings were, um, you know, uh, obviously critical for where we are today.
1: So key takeaway here is take as many meetings as as, as you can. Uh, you never know what's going to happen, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that, you know, I, I say often uh, in the startup community is that Um, you know everybody that you meet in the startup space is super smart. Um, They know uh, a lot about their uh, markets, they read a lot, they can talk um, about anything that you want, they're just super intelligent people Um, and so what I like to say is that when it comes to startups and entrepreneurship I think like intelligence is commoditized but the one thing that I don't think is commoditized is persistence. I think oftentimes you find people that won't um, won't persist, and as a consequence, they don't last long enough to see those opportunities come into play um, and and capture those. And so, you know, uh, I think that persistence part is 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 as important, potentially more important than you know that intelligence side.
1: Got it. Now, and I totally agree with that. And another thing that actually came to my mind was, you know, in the startup world, you all, all, always see people talking about, you know, there's it's a timing thing. And then it sounds like in this scenario, it was also a timing thing too because it just pulled out of nowhere. You guys were doing – it felt like everything was going right and all of a sudden just, boom, it's gone.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, you can't um, argue with timing and luck being a, a factor for uh, uh, your business. Um, it's definitely important. And the only thing that you can do – is uh, the longer that you last, um, the more opportunities there are for luck and for timing. So, um, uh, you know, it's going to happen eventually. Uh, it has to, but um, you just have to be in the, in the game long enough to see it happen.
1: All right. Now, what's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25-year-old self?
0: Uh, 25-year-old self, um, probably learn to code.
1: Okay. Is there any, is there any reason behind that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, it gives you a better, uh, you know, I, I know, I know a little bit, but I don't know enough where I can completely intuit all the sort of technical challenges or opportunities that, uh, we might have at Parsley. Like I have it at a high level, um, but, you know, actually talking to a customer and saying, Oh yeah, we can do this. And like, you know, a couple of weeks or, oh, no, 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 this is going to take like, you know, several months. You need to, especially at sort of what we're doing, you need to have um, a good understanding of the code code and infrastructure that um, we have at Parsley to be able to answer those questions. So I think it becomes really important, actually, um, on the sales side, if you can have that knowledge and use it as a a tool in your sales belt to, um, you know, uh, help uh, uh, push it across the line. Um, if you're talking to product managers or product engineers, and then I think it's just also, you know, you know, something that's going to be fundamental for, uh, you know, our our uh, education system down the road. So um, everybody's, I think, will know how to code in the next um, at least some some aspect of it in the next, um, you know, several decades. Okay.
1: Totally agree with that. Um, it's the reason why I was at that other company because we taught people how to code. But one of the reasons I joined was to learn how to code. But then I, you know, once you get busy, there's just not enough time for it. So let's take your advice to where you are right now. You know, as a, as a CEO of a growing company that's doing, you know, um, millions in revenue a year, um, it, you know, would you still, would you still try to code right now or is there just not any time for it anymore?
0: Um, I would love to, <laughs> um, I, I don't know where I would find the time to do it. Um, that might be a little bit of a pop out. I think there's always time if you make the right time, but, mm. uh, if you make the, make it the right priority, but, um, I probably, to be frank, I probably wouldn't do it now.
1: Got it. Okay. Now just a few more questions from my side here. Who is your idol and
0: why? Who is my idol and why? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's so many uh, different people that I looked up up to for a variety of different reasons. Um, you gotta this is like a, a cliche answer, but you gotta, you gotta love Elon Musk and what he's doing, how sort of uh, fearless he is, um, you know, how he had a, a quick win, or not a quick win, but an early win with PayPal. Um, and how, you know, a couple years, maybe even a couple of months after that, he was on to his next thing and he was ready to go absolutely bankrupt to build a car company and a rocket company. And now he's off to Mars. Like, it's that that is just uh, super impressive and I think enviable of what he's been able to do there. I agree.
1: And to be able to learn rocket science just by reading books on your own is kind of insane. So, yeah, he
0: actually just had um, a Reddit AMA yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I I think one of the people uh, asked him, like, you know, you're able to learn all of this stuff at an incredible rate. Do you think, like, it's just uh, a factor of your talent and your ability to sort of absorb this knowledge? Or do you think there's something that you do that other people aren't doing? Um, And his response was, yes, I do read a lot, but... Um, the absolute thing that you need to do is understand fundamentals. And if you can understand the fundamentals, whether it's physics or rocket science or, um, computer, computer science, um, then you can start to build off of that and your knowledge can start to grow as you collaborate with other people. So I thought that was an important takeaway.
1: You know, I was actually, I I think I was reading on my phone this morning and, One of the, I think I was reading something about him where he said it's, it's, you know, most people like to compare analogies when, when, when building something, but it's more about principles than anything. And I think he made a, he made a comparison saying, you know, most people say if they're trying to build a battery, you know, they'll say other batteries are $600. It's an analogy, right? But if you go back and start from the fundamentals, you can actually break something down and maybe say, you know, come up with the price of $80 instead, and you've built something completely new.
0: Yeah, I think that's like actually uh, a great point. Um, And I think it's one of the tensions between entrepreneurs and investors, actually. Um, I think investors really like to think about things in analogs. This is the Uber for X. This is the Airbnb for Y. Um, But when you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, they they actually can kind of cringe when um, that happens to their company because they're like, no, that's not it. It's actually a completely different category. Um, And I think, you know, uh, that's another important point: is that you know a lot of um, successful entrepreneurs don't think about uh, actually their competitors at all because they what you know the market is saying is their competitors or what investors are saying are, are their competitors. Um, you know, entrepreneurs are thinking no, no, no. That's like yeah, there's some things that are overlapping there, but we're actually doing something completely different and we're going to play into a different market because we're thinking about the next year the next five years the next 10 years even
1: got it yeah totally agree with that um you know the 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 whole uber for x thing i think that's the that thing that thing's totally getting played out but um moving on here you know elon musk says one of his favorite uh quote-unquote hacks is showering so you know i'm just wondering here what's one of your productivity hacks
0: uh yeah so um i try to hack things up as much as possible so um one of the things that i use um is I am absolutely obsessive about having a clean inbox, email inbox, and like if it is more than um, you know uh, I would say probably 80 messages in my central inbox, then I go crazy. And so one of the things that I do is I have this whole like system for um, dealing with email where I use Gmail's multiple inboxes and I use like the multiple stars to auto categorize um, emails as things that need to be worked on right now or, um, um, need to be worked on soon versus things where I'm waiting on a reply back from somebody versus, you know, sort of the scheduled things like a hotel reservation or a plane reservation or something that I'll continually need access to and then things that I've delegated off. And so I have like five different inboxes in a single inbox and that's something that I actively manage and I think has worked really, really well for me as, um, the email uh has increased
1: okay and final question from my side what's one must read book you recommend to the audience just one
0: um one must read book um does it have to be like a uh could be anything it, could be anything um you know well one of the books that i i think i continually read uh, year after year is uh Siddhartha by herman hess i love that novel Cool. Can you can you describe that book a little bit? Yeah, so it's basically um, Herman has to uh, goes through the uh, sort of the storytelling of Siddhartha Gautama who became um, the Buddha, hmm. um, and uh, he sort of tells. I don't. I'm, I'm not Buddhist. It's not a religious thing for me, but it mm-hmm. sort of walks through the experience of um, how he sort of managed his life and. Uh, uh, it's just a great story and it takes like not a lot of time to read. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> it takes, it's, it's like a hundred something pages. It's not that long and something that I continually come back to. I yeah. think it, it just uh, it places um, a good amount of perspective and uh, puts you in the right mode of reflection on not just um, what you're doing in relation to your business, but what, uh, what you're doing in relation to life.
1: Yeah, I, I think the good thing about these stories and, and these biographies is that, you know, you kind of take what you can from them and you, you kind of make it your own. It's not them giving you direct advice, but you're able to figure something out for yourself. So I think that's the power of it. Um, but anyway, um, what is the best way for people to find you online?
0: Yeah, so um, you can find me online uh, at Sachin Kandar. Um, on Twitter so at S-A-C-H-I-N-K-A M for Mary D for David A-R you can actually just Google my name too and like the first there's not a lot of people with my name so the first probably 20 links will all be me Um, I also have a blog that I do not use a lot Um, that's at sachinkamdar.com or you can go to parsley.com P-A-R-S-E-L-Y and check out what we do and um, there's there's some stuff that I contribute to there
1: Perfect. Everyone, this is Sachin Kamdar of Parsley. Make sure you check it out if you're doing content marketing so you can do it right. Um, Sachin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric. How many of you have experienced making a bad hire or had bad hires on your team? I personally lost over $840,000 on just one bad hire alone. So that's why I'm doing a free class called the five secrets to avoiding bad hires that can cost you $50,000 plus each. All you need to do is to text "bad hire" spell it out B A D H I R E to three three four four four. That's double three, triple four, and you'll be registered. I'll see you there.